Well, ladies and gentlemen, very warm welcome to this public lecture by, uh, by Charles Grant. Um, as director of the, uh, of the Centre for European Reform, I'm sure he's uh, known to many of you as uh, uh, certainly one of the most respected and influential commentators um, and uh, uh, voices uh, on the European Union. We're delighted to have him with us uh, this evening. Now, under Charles's directorship, um, the CER's, the Centre for European Reform's output in terms of commentary, analysis, prescription uh, has, uh, has really been quite uh, prodigious uh, and I think it's no exaggeration to say that no consideration of, uh, EU, uh, of the EU's policies and institutions um, uh, in Brussels, Whitehall, other EU capitals, in the media, um, no such discussion seems complete without uh, the CER's input, and that is very much tribute to Charles. Now, uh, he has turned his pen to most aspects of Europe during his uh, career. Before uh, uh, running, before taking charge of the Centre for European Reform, uh, he was uh, Brussels correspondent uh, of The Economist, and then he was that paper's, that magazine's defence editor. He, he wrote a much acclaimed uh, biography and much translated biography of uh, Jacques Delors, then Commission President. Uh, he has been a, a trustee um, and a director of the British Council. He's a member of the advisory board of several international think tanks and so on and so on. He was decorated also with the Ordre National du Mérite in 2004. Uh, now, I said that Charles has written on most aspects of the EU, uh, including the euro, the future of the EU's institutions, um, uh, the CFSP, um, but I think where perhaps he's carved his most distinctive niche has been the, in terms of the context of uh, the EU's relations with the rest of the world, uh, both with the United States and with Russia, with China. So I know he's going to have quite a lot to say about those two countries in particular uh, this evening. And it's very much through that geopolitical optic uh, that uh, we asked him to um, come to LSE to consider Europe's role in the next chapter of the world's multilateral institutions. Um, and that chapter looks set potentially to be the most transformational uh, since the current system of global governance was fashioned after the Second World War under uh, leadership, the leadership of the United States. Now, I think we're all well seized of the topicality uh, of this issue, uh, and in particular of the current narrative of the EU's uh, relative decline as a global power. In fact, one can hardly pick up a book uh, or a current affairs magazine in an airport lounge without confronting it. Uh, everything seems to be stacked against Europe at the moment. Demographic decline, falling competitiveness, underperformance and in innovation, shrinking military capabilities, uh, the list is a long one. Lack of political will, uh, perhaps uh, an erosion of self-belief as well, and above all, perhaps the, the sense that, that the exciting action in the world is now elsewhere, not to mention the attention of the US President. So this is clearly not a happy state of affairs seen from the EU's perspective. And uh, I think perhaps a question uh, was rather nicely put by Sir Geoffrey Howe once when he was uh, foreign, foreign Secretary and when he asked whether inertia has developed its own momentum. And um, I think one could argue that many watching the EU leaders' summit on Libya last Friday could be forgiven for thinking just that. Um, are we moving inexorably now towards a G2 of the US and China 10 years from now, perhaps? Uh, will EU countries even be allowed into the room when the IMF and the World Bank meet? Well, of course I exaggerate, but 
perhaps only a little. And I'm, but I'm reassured, I am reassured to know that uh, some of our best minds are trying to figure out how to avoid that dismal scenario and how to make sure that the EU uh, can use the not inconsiderable tools at its disposal to help to make the world a better place. Hence our invitation to Charles Grant. Um, as per our usual practice, he will, of course, take questions uh, uh, and hopefully a good number of questions um, after he has spoken. Uh, we'll need to draw things to a close by about uh, 10 to 8. Um, anyway, but now for the main piece, as it were, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Charles Grant. Thank you very much, Morris. Um, when we discussed this lecture, I said I wanted to talk about Russia and China and global governance. And he said, but Charles, you must say something about Europe. People will expect you to. So I promise to say a little bit about Europe at the end, <laughs> or maybe more than a little bit. But uh, a lot of what I say will be about the impact of Russia and China on the way the world is organized. And I'll start off with some very general comments on global governance, though very brief ones. It seems to me that three times since the Second World War, there has been optimism about multilateral institutions running or managing, managing problems in the world. One was just after the war, when you had the creation of the Bretton Woods institutions, GATT, and the United Nations. The second time was in the early 1990s, when Russia was, from the West point of view, compliant on the UN Security Council. And, uh, and, and uh, we also, um, yes, and more or less did, did, what, did what Western governments wanted it to do. And GATT was turned into the World Trade Organization. We had the Rio Conference on Climate Change. And then the third uh, time of optimism was very recently, 2008, 2009, when after the financial crisis, the G20 seemed to offer hope for coordination of economic policies and bringing emerging powers into global governance. And it got some real results on bank recapitalization and coordination of economic stimulus packages. Well, I think the optimism is over. The steam has run out of the G20. It serves some purpose as a talking shop, but governments don't consult other members of it before they do what they want to do anyway. Uh, the Doha round remains unresolved. The Copenhagen Climate Change Conference in 2009 was pretty bad. And the single biggest problem in global governance today is the UN Security Council remains unreformed, and it seems to be unreformable. This is serious because it delegitimizes the United Nations. Uh, and I think this weakening of multilateralism, as I see it, coincides with a strengthening of multipolarity. The two trends are not coincidental, as I will try to explain. The power shift from West to East and South, which has been so much discussed, is not military, of course, because the US remains responsible for half the world's defense spending. It is economic and diplomatic. According to some figures I've seen, um, world GDP on a PPP basis in 2030, China would have 23% of world GDP, the US 17%, the EU 16%, India 9%, Japan 4%, Russia less than 3%, with Brazil, Indonesia, South Africa, Turkey, Mexico, and Vietnam becoming quite significant economies. So, Multipolarity is a fact, but the question, which is interesting, is what kind of multipolar world? One in which there is multilateralism, namely governments accept the authority of institutions and treaties and rules, or one based on the balance of power where might is right and where strong countries can bully their neighbors into doing what they want them to do. 
Now, I'm pretty pessimistic. There will, of course, be a mixture of the two, but I'm, I'm leaning towards thinking that we're going to see a balance of power multipolarity for three reasons. One is that the EU is weak economically, diplomatically, militarily, and I'll say more about that in my conclusion. Secondly, the newly emerging powers, sometimes the unilateral, sometimes they focus on bilateral relations, sometimes they're multilateral if it suits them, but they're generally pretty lukewarm about global governance, and the influence of these emerging powers is, of course, growing. And that's, I'm going to focus today on Russia and China, because those are the countries I've been working on, which isn't to say that I don't think India and Brazil, South Africa, Turkey, etc., are unimportant, but most of what I say will be on Russia and China. The third reason for pessimism is, is America. Like the newly emerging powers, it alternates between multilateralism and unilateralism, depending on the subject and its mood. It's probably more serious about global governance than the emerging powers, but it is in relative decline, economically and diplomatically. Its soft power has been greatly undermined by the Iraq and Afghan wars and the financial crisis. I guess the US will remain fairly internationalist because even a government of the Tea Party would discover that the US has global interests and needs allies, as Bush Jr. learned in his second term. But I think it may be that the US is on a, a long-term trend towards unilateralism, if not isolationism, and the election of Obama may come to be seen as a brief aberration. We forget that when Bill Clinton was president, uh, we were all, or many of us, were complaining about US unilateralism. It, there was a problem in the 1990s. Logically, if the US understands its relative power is weakening, it should favor very strong global governance to constrain China's freedom of maneuver. Uh, but I'm not sure that U.S. politics is always going to be as logical as that. Now, let me come on to Russia and China, because I think China in particular is going to be crucial for the way global governance develops, but I think Russia is also interesting, and a lot of what I say about uh, Russia and China also applies to the other emerging powers, even though they're not, even though they are, unlike Russia and China, democratic. And let me note five similarities between Russia and China in the way they approach global governance. Firstly, they are very sovereignist or realist. Um, they, they, they view global governance as a Western concept used by the West to promote the interests of the West. They believe that power matters much more than rules in international relations, and that what rules there are reflect power relationships. They believe the rules serve the interests of the strong. Both understand, of course, that they have to take part in multilateral bodies to protect their interests, and that multilateral bodies can often be very useful for thwarting the interests of opponents. The Russians and the Chinese tend to be allergic to the phrase, the international community, and I have sympathy with them on that. It's a sloppy phrase, beloved of journalists and politicians, which implies there is a disinterested objective court of opinion shapers and decision makers that defines what is right and what is wrong. Russians and Chinese believe that Western media propagate a worldview sympathetic to the interests of Western governments and attribute it to the international community. That's why both countries have set up TV stations to rival CNN and the BBC. When I edit CR publications, I try to cut out the phrase international community. What it means is the Western governments in the international institutions they dominate or in which they are influential. Uh, second point in common between Russia and China, they're strongly committed to the principle of non-interference. 
They did sign up to the principle of responsibility to protect at the United Nations in 2005 and even voted for sanctions against Gaddafi earlier this month. But they are deeply hostile to the concept of liberal interventionism. As we speak, they are trying to block a no-fly zone over Libya. They, interestingly to me, they share this view with the other emerging powers, which are democracies. Um, India, South Africa, Brazil, and Turkey sometimes seem to think that hostility to the US or the desire to oppose what could be seen as neo-colonialism is more important than establishing global norms for, for, of behavior or promoting democracy. Uh, that's why the countries I've just mentioned have supported regimes like Iran and Burma. Um, Russia and China, though perhaps unlike the democratic countries I mentioned, are particularly opposed to liberal interventionism because they worry about foreign interference in trouble spots which are either their own or in which they take a close interest. That, hence Russia opposed NATO's bombing of Serbia in 1999. Because of its historic links with Serbia, it was concerned about what happened there. Russia was also worried about Western interference in the Caucasus, uh, including particularly, particularly Chechnya, of course, it undermined its own principles in 2008 by uh, taking over two parts of Georgia by force, much to the annoyance of China. China is much e even more worried about Western interference on issues such as Tibet, uh, Taiwan, and Xinjiang. On Tibet and Xinjiang, when Western governments uh, express support for democracy or human rights, the Chinese tend to see it as a ruse intended to promote the breakup of China. Some of the hostility to liberal interventionism reflects the fear of US power. Indeed, both countries are quite paranoid about the US. The invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq made them fret about what the US might do in their own backyards. Both fear encirclement by American-led military alliances. And if you are a paranoid Russian or Chinese nationalist and you look at the map of American military bases in Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and East Asia, you have reason to be concerned. These worries have diminished a bit since George Bush left office. Um, my third point uh, on what they share, Russia and China, is that, they, that the sort of global governance they like is concert diplomacy. That is to say, informal gatherings of great powers that try to sort out problems on the model of the Congress of Vienna in 1814. There is no supranationalism, that is to say, cession of sovereignty to institutions. Concert diplomacy gives the big powers status and the opportunity to protect their interests. That's why Russia and China take part in the six-party talks on North Korea and Iran. Uh, they're both in the G20, and Russia likes the G8, mainly because China's not in it. And, the, and Russia is also in the, the Middle East Quartet. Russia and China are both dismissive of small countries, the Russians particularly so. One reason the Russians get annoyed with the EU is that a small member state can block a decision in the Council of Ministers, as Lithuania did when it blocked the opening of trade talks with Russia a few years ago. Um, they, the Russians do not always regard small countries or countries that used to be in the USSR as truly sovereign. This applies even to large countries like Ukraine. Putin has several times said he doesn't think Ukraine is a real country. China is less impolite about its neighbors, but does expect them to treat it with respect. The mindset in Beijing sometimes still echoes that of the tributary system. Hence, at a recent meeting of the ASEAN Regional Forum, when Hillary Clinton went along, and uh, Hillary Clinton said, um, 
backed when when the other the other countries in the ASEAN regional forum backed her idea that disputes between China and ASEAN members in the South China Sea should be settled multilaterally um, rather than bilaterally. Uh, the Chinese foreign minister got very annoyed and um, threw a tantrum. Uh, because he expected them to be deferential to him, these countries in Southeast Asia. Both Russia and China believe in de facto spheres of influence in their neighbourhoods. The fourth point in common is that they are both keen to use regional bodies to strengthen their global positions. Both are, of course, in the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation. China takes part in the ASEAN Plus Three meetings, the three being China, Japan, South Korea, the ASEAN Regional Forum and the East Asia Summit. Russia has a customs union with Belarus and Kazakhstan that Russian leaders take rather seriously. It also leads the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which brings together Belarus, Armenia, and most of the Central Asian states. All these bodies could be described as regional concerts, and Russia and China, because of their size, play a leading role in them. The SCO, the Customs Union, and the Collective Security Treaty Organization are more than talking shops because they have their own institutions, but they're not supranational in any way. I think as far as Russia is concerned, this interest in regional governance reflects a negative view of the future of global governance. That is to say, the Russians think that global governance will stay weak and underdeveloped. Russia, Russia also lacks the self-confidence to believe it can shape global institutions. It thinks it can use regional bodies to strengthen its clout at global level. China sees regional bodies rather differently. It uses them to cloak its growing power and reassure its neighbours it will not treat them roughly or aggressively. And it uses these institutions to promote its interests in a soft and unthreatening way. Fifth and lastly, in both Russia and China, there are struggles and arguments between two broad camps. One relatively liberal, and I stress the word relatively, that is fairly positive about engaging in global institutions, and one that is more nationalist and very suspicious of engagement. In both countries, the so-called liberals enjoy some influence on economic policy making. The nationalists dominate the government overall and questions of foreign and defence policy. One difference between them, and I'll say more on this later, is that in Russia, those dominating security policy do accept some degree of multilateralism, multilateralism on issues such as proliferation, arms control and nuclear weapons. In Russia, the division between the two camps has spilled into the open with the public disagreements between Medvedev and Putin over whether they should join the WTO. Uh, Putin obviously is often sides with the nationalists, though not always. In China, the arguments are more opaque. However, the kind of Chinese who come to our conferences and talk to Western analysts, such as ourselves, tend to be relatively liberal, and we tend to meet the nationalist people in China less often. Now, I'm going to come to the differences between Russia and China, which is really the nub of what I have to say. I do think there's a, a difference of approach to global governance between Russia and China. China does not take global governance very seriously on issues of security, but does engage, when it sees an interest in doing so, on issues of economics. Russia, by contrast, is prepared to sign up to some international rules on security, but hasn't thought a great deal about economic global governance. Now, this thesis is, of course, an oversimplification. Russia probably will join the WTO one day, and China does provide thousands of peacekeepers, well, just under 2,000 peacekeepers, on various UN operations, and it has sent some ships off the coast of Somalia. 
uh, against the pirates there. But overall, I think the people running China are very cautious about committing themselves to international agreements that will constrain their freedom of action on military or security issues. China shuns the International Criminal Court and the Ottawa Convention on Landmines, as do Russia and the US. But China also spurns the Proliferation Security Initiative, which seeks to prevent illicit transfers of weapons of mass destruction, the Missile Technology Control Regime, which is what it says, and the Vassanar Group, which tries to control exports of dual-use technology. Russia has joined all those groups. China just doesn't do arms control. If you say to a Chinese military person, as I have done, suppose you, the US and Russia keep reducing their nuclear weapons, uh, their, their nuclear warheads, and suppose Britain and France join, join in and also cut their number of warheads, would China ever agree to join in some sort of multilateral agreement on reducing nuclear warheads? And the answer you get is, why on earth do we ever do that so long as Russia and America have more warheads than we do? There'd be no interest in us doing it, so we won't. And that is, that is, that is what they say in private. Their public position is a bit more, a bit more uh, polished than that. Um, and it's the only member of the P5, the permanent members of the Security Council, that is increasing its nuclear arsenal at the moment. In the past, of course, China had a history as a proliferator of, of, uh, of nuclear technology, helping Pakistan to develop its own nuclear weapons program. Over the past two decades, it is fair to say that China has cleaned up its act to a large degree. It signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and joined the Nuclear Suppliers Group, which tries to control transfers of nuclear technology. But I still think it, China is not strongly committed to the cause of non-proliferation. That is the view, at least, you hear in Moscow if you talk to people who work in the atomic establishment in Russia. They point to the current sale by China of two uh, plutonium reactors to Pakistan in breach of nuclear supplier group rules. The Chinese defense of that sale is that America got the NSG rules waived when it, uh, and so that it could uh, sell nuclear materials to India or, and when it brought India in from the cold with its nuclear deal with India. And India, like Pakistan, is a non-signatory of the, the NPT. That's the Chinese defense, to which the Russians say, very aptly, um, Pakistan is the world's worst proliferator and, China has a very uh, and India has a very good record on proliferation. So I think China question marks about its commitment to uh, any sort of security global governance. On economic issues, however, I think it's the reverse. I think China is engaging more and more as time goes on in international institutions. Since it joined the WTO in 2002, it has respected every ruling of a dispute settlement panel that has gone against it. It doesn't always follow WTO rules, but it's not alone in that. China does send good officials to bodies such as the Basel Committee on Bank Capital, the Financial Stability Board on Financial Regulation, the IMF, the World Bank, even the International Accounting Standards Board. Governor Cho of the Central Bank, that's the People's Bank, has produced proposals for reforming the international monetary order involving the transformation of SDRs, special drawing rights, into a real reserve currency. China takes the G20 very seriously using its status there to block initiatives it dislikes, such as attempts to monitor and limit global imbalances. And it enjoys being one of the sort of the big two in the, in the G20 alongside the US. As a rising power, a fast-growing economy, and the world's biggest exporter, China's leaders understand they have global interests, global economic interests, and that global rules help to protect those interests. Thus, the WTO is an insurance against the risk of protectionism. 
However, the WTO is a rare example of China accepting rules that limit its sovereignty. On other issues of global economic governance, China is not prepared to allow institutions to constrain its freedom of maneuver. Hence, its refusals to accept any international rules on carbon emissions. China has been much criticized on climate change, and deservedly so, given that it is the world's biggest emitter of carbon gases, and its output of them is rising fast. However, China is signing up to domestic commitments that are very significant for the global diplomacy on climate change. The five-year plan unveiled in the last few weeks calls for a 16% reduction in energy consumption per unit of GDP and a 17% cut in CO2 emissions per unit of GDP, which is, which is very encouraging. And some of the climate change experts I talk to think in the long run the US is a much bigger problem in China because it's simply politically impossible for the Senate to ever pass any uh, any international treaty on climate change. At least that is what many people believe, but some of you know perhaps more about US politics than I do. I'd like to hear your views on that. Some Chinese leaders are quite frank about their different approaches to economic and security global governance, the difference that I've outlined. Last December, when I was at Beijing at a conference, um, I had an exchange with the vice minister on this issue, and she, she said this to me. Of course we take economic global governance seriously, our number one problem is poverty. We have to keep growing to create jobs. Nothing is more important than looking after our economic interests, which are global, so we have to play a role in international institutions. Security institutions are less important for us. You Westerners are obsessed with proliferation, but we are not. So that's China. What about Russia? In contrast to China, Russia does not have a reputation for sending the highest quality officials to international economic organizations. In most of these bodies, it is quiet and passive, seldom taking the initiative. In the G8 and the G20, it takes a special interest in energy questions, but not much else. The key question now in Russia, of course, is the WTO. And there are three reasons why Russia has been so slow to join the WTO. It's been negotiating since 1993. Firstly, Russia does not export many manufactured goods, except for weapons, which I think are not covered by WTO rules. Uh, the raw materials it exports are certainly not covered. Secondly, WTO membership would reduce tariffs in Russia, therefore stimulating competition in the Russian economy and upsetting, upsetting some of the industries like cars and agriculture. Vested interests don't like that. Thirdly, you would get more FDI in Russia if it was in the WTO. Many Russians think that more foreign investment would be a bad thing, allowing Western imperialists to exploit Russia's mineral resources and siphon wealth out of the country. The nationalist tendency in Russia think that Russia will do just fine as a hydrocarbon superpower, managing its own resources and running an autarkic economy. Although this faction dominates the country, it does not have a complete sway over economic policy. Ministers, ministers such as Kudrin and Shuvalov are engagers um, the nationalists, of course, dominate foreign and defence policy, but even in this area there is a tradition stretching back to the Cold War of signing up to international agreements, particularly on arms control. These officials view arms control as a defensive mechanism. Though they do not trust the US, they think that arms control treaties constrain the Americans' ability to surge ahead with armaments build-ups. George Bush Jr. really scared them because he didn't believe in arms control and renounced the ABM treaty. Russian support for arms control is not unconditional. It has, of course, recently uh, pulled out of the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty. 
but the Moscow security establishment remains broadly in favor of arms control and a strong non-proliferation regime, proliferation regime. They make sense for Russia because it has lots of arms and a lot of nuclear weapons, so in any negotiations on them it is treated as an important player. Many Russians are also aware that they are, in relative terms, a declining economic power. They think that international agreements on security and weaponry can bolster Russians' position vis-à-vis -vis other stronger powers. Now, a last word on Russia and China, which is the trends in both countries. And I think in the last few years, there's no doubt that China has become more assertive uh, in pushing its national interests. And Russia, perhaps since the Georgia War in 2008, has become a little less assertive. These trends, if real and long-lasting, will have some implications for global governance. The view of Indians, Japanese, Europeans, Southeast Asians, and some Russians is that China has become much more difficult to deal with in the past few years. Now, why has China become more difficult to deal with? One factor not fully appreciated in the West is that there are many new actors in China's foreign policy, in addition to the foreign ministry, whose influence is weaker than it was. On economic policy, you have the National Development and Reform Commission, which perhaps explains some of the protectionist measures taken against Western companies. The fisheries protection fleet probably explains the tough line with Japan over the Senkaku Islands. The PLA certainly influenced, well, the People's Liberation Army, certainly influenced Taiwan policy. And the PLA Navy has surely been behind the push to declare the South China Sea a core national interest, which is a new thing for the Chinese to declare uh, in the past few years. Some provincial governments influence foreign policy in the areas they are close to, like Yunnan on Burma and Guangdong on the South China Sea. Oil companies and extractive industries seem to have a big say on policy in places such as Sudan, Congo, or Angola, where China has made big investments. Most of these new actors are more nationalist than those traditionally in charge of relations with the West, such as the Foreign Ministry and the Commerce Ministry. There are many other factors, of course, behind the assertiveness of China's foreign policy. China is more self-confidence because of its economic success. The financial crisis made people think that the West was weak, no longer an example to be looked up to and followed. Some people in China, and I think that Deng Xiaoping's old dictum of bide our time and hide our capabilities needs revision. Um, and another factor, according to Chinese officials, is the blogosphere. They say the nationalists who are so active within the blogosphere constrain their freedom of maneuver on foreign policy, notably in relations with Japan. I've heard officials say we cannot compromise with Japan on the Senkaku Islands because the netizens would get so angry. Now, you can argue as to which came first, you know, the officials encouraging nationalist netizens or officials reflecting what the angry netizens think, but that's what officials say. And the other factor, of course, is the translation to the new generation of leadership uh, next year. Individuals worried about where they will end up in the new hierarchy do not want to be seen as soft on foreigners. The Chinese Communist Party, of course, sets overall policy on the biggest issues, such as North Korea. But to many Western observers, and I think I would go along with this, it does seem that no single individual or committee is really in charge of foreign policy at the moment. Uh, Chinese foreign policy seems to have been a bit of a mess in the last year or two. So many words and actions have set neighbors against China and are starting to create a, a sort of the germ of, of, a, of an alliance. Some of these countries teaming up with the US to constrain and even contain China. 
Now, if this assertiveness continues, this obviously isn't particularly good for global governance because China may become a practitioner of Rumsfeldism. That is to say, China will see slow-moving international institutions as an encumbrance on its freedom of manoeuvre, and it'll just try and get what it wants by acting unilaterally or with a band of allies getting its way through, 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 through pushing other countries around. However, within the Chinese system, there are certainly many people who take a different view, particularly those in the economic side of the Chinese government. And they think that China has no choice, choice but to integrate with global economic and political systems while refashioning them to China's advantage. The trend in Russia may possibly be in the other direction from the trend in China. The oil price is extremely important for what happens in Russia. So long as it stays high, there is very little incentive to reform or shake up the economy so that it diversifies, as it should do, towards manufacturing and services, and it should, of course, become less dependent on raw material exports. The thing is, though, that a restructured economy would threaten the position the privileged position of the cliques who hold political power and reap financial benefits from the natural resource industries. The liberals in the system would like to improve the rule of law and the conditions experienced by foreign and domestic investors to encourage rebalancing within the economy, and they favour Russia's engagement in global economic governance as a way of speeding up change within Russia. But these liberals, although they have some influence in some ministries, I think they will probably not win many arguments in the near future without a prolonged period of low oil prices to make people realise that there's, there's a problem, even a crisis, and things need to change. For now, with oil prices above $100 a barrel, life is too good for the Russian elite. In the very long run in Russia, perhaps some cautious grounds for hope. The oil price may not stay high, high forever. The economic liberals are not without influence, and Putin has at various times sided with them. There are arguments for modernizing the economy so that businesses can operate more easily in Russia, and for diversifying the economy are compelling, and fear of, Russia's, sorry, fear of China's rising power is growing in Moscow without any question. It is one reason why Russia has been relatively soft towards the United States and the European Union in the last two and a half years. If the elite can be convinced that Russia's power and influence in the world would be enhanced by structural change in the economy, it may swallow some measures of reform. All of which is to say that in the long run, Russia may engage in economic global governance more constructively than it has done. Now, finally, a few words about Europe. And indeed the euro, which is not irrelevant to what I've been talking about, I think. As I've already said, one of the reasons why I'm pessimistic about multilateralism is because the EU's voice is so weak. And if the EU was stronger, I think it would be able to tilt the international system towards multilateralism. It should, of course, try to convince the emerging powers that they would benefit from stronger global rules. And it's trying to do so. But the most important thing the EU should do if it wants to influence the global order is to arrest the decline of its own power hard and soft. Europe has failed to develop as a power in the last few years, as some of us hoped it would. There are many reasons for this. I'll just mention a couple. One of them, one of them is enlargement of the EU. This is not to say that enlargement was a bad idea or that we shouldn't have enlarged 27 countries. I'm glad that we did. But because foreign policy is decided by unanimity, it makes agreement on foreign policy more difficult. There are more people around the table. And we have countries like Cyprus in the European Union, which often create very big difficulties for policy on, say, Russia. The second problem, there is a strategic rift 
amongst the member states. Between those who believe in solving, uh, those who believe in using force to solve security problems and those who do, do, do not believe in using force. And of course we've seen this division this week. Britain and France would like to see some sort of no-fly zone over Libya and Germany and most other countries think this is a bad idea. And if you don't even agree on what kind of power that you should be, you're not going to become much of a power. There's some little things too. The choice of Van Rompuy and Ashton obviously shows a lack of ambition. The over-representation of the EU in international institutions attracts derision. I think in the G20 meetings there are nine European governments represented usually, which is, you know, people laugh at that because we can't get our act together and, and, and focus our representation. Another thing at the moment is the defence cuts in Europe, which actually not only damage Europe's hard power, but its soft power too. Every government in Europe is cutting defence spending, many of them quite drastically. I think um, one of the Baltic countries is cutting its defence budget by 50%. There are, of course, no votes in defence spending. Uh, Dennis McShane may tell us if, when he stands on his soapbox in Rotherham, if he will increase his vote at the next election if he calls for a 10% growth in the defence budget. I suspect he wouldn't. Um, as Robert Cooper has said, we Europeans like to believe we live in a postmodern paradise. Uh, the truth is, of course, Europe is surrounded by a jungle of very modern countries, very well armed and rather fierce. Uh, so I think most other countries, some, I spend a lot of time in, in Russia and China, and when, when, they, when they look at us cutting our defence budgets, it's one reason why they don't take us very seriously as a potential power. But it's not just the hard power that is not working, it's the soft power too. We like to pride ourselves on our soft power, but that is not, uh, not something that is in necessarily in good health either. And there are many elements behind perhaps the, why Europe as a model is less attractive than it was and it's less inspirational than it was or, or has been. And I'll just mention uh, three. Sometimes we're not too true to our own values and principles. And we've seen this in recent analysis of what's going on in North Africa. Over the past five years or so, the EU policy has actually shifted on North Africa. We started off in our neighborhood policy there, trying to promote democracy and human rights, but also, of course, trying to promote economic reform and uh, good governance and promote our own interests too. And perhaps, uh, you know, we, we, we had our interests and our values and thought we could do both. But as in the last five years or so, we've actually de-emphasized democracy and human rights because we became more worried about Islamic extremism. We became more worried about immigration. And so we said to countries like Tunisia, uh, please cut down illegal immigrants to us um, and please cooperate in counter-terrorism. And uh, we also said, um, well, we'd like you to be more democratic, but we didn't really mean that bit and we didn't apply conditionalized conditionality to our aid to these countries. We, we cared about the counter-terrorism and the immigration. We forgot about the democracy and human rights. And of course, um, foreign policy is always about balancing values and interests. And you have to do both. And sometimes they contradict each other. But we started to assume in Europe that in the Arab world, there was an inherent contradiction that if in order to promote our interests, which was strong secular regimes who would stand as a bulwark against Islamic extremism, we had to forget our values. That, with hindsight, was clearly a mistake. We got the balance wrong. And we lost the respect of many Arab people in North Africa because of that. A second problem with our soft power is universities. If you look at the league tables of global universities, the European universities are going down, down, and down. Britain is the exception, and I'm sure this place is an exception. And for all the problems in British universities, other European countries 
need to uh, learn from Britain, I think, as in terms of allowing centres of excellence and allowing universities that are not micromanaged by ministries. Europe needs to do something about its universities. That's an important part of its soft power. Most important of all uh, for our soft power is we've got to solve the economy. This will be my, my final remarks will be on the European economy. It's the single biggest reason why people in other parts of the world don't take us seriously and why we will simply not be listened to if we do try and come up with ideas on global governance. The trend rate of growth in Europe is 1% below that of the US. That was before the crisis and it's after the financial crisis. And frankly, if fixing that problem is much more important for how we are respected in the world than whether it's Cathy Ashton or David Miliband or Carl Bildt as the high representative. The economy matters, matters more than the people. There are many causes of slow growth, and since I'm sitting or standing in the London School of Economics, some of you I'm sure know more about them than I do. I'll just mention what I think one particularly important one is. This is productivity. The productivity record in Europe, including Germany, is very, very poor, especially in services, which is the dominant form of, of economic activity in our countries, even in, in a country that has a lot of manufacturing like Germany. Improved productivity in services requires better regulation at national level to, to remove barriers to entry, but also, in particular, deregulation at a European level to get cross-border competition. The so-called Bolkestein Directive a few years ago should have liberalised services, but was greatly weakened by the protectionist countries led by France. I don't think Germany played a great role in that either. Maria Monti said recently at a conference we organised in Brussels, the irony of the Eurozone crisis is that the governments which most strongly believe in greater economic integration, who want to deepen the single market, that is to say the UK, Poland, Sweden, Denmark and the Czech Republic are not in the Euro, while the countries in the monetary union do not want a true economic union. They have been much less enthusiastic for market integration. Nothing in the recent Franco-German proposals for a so-called pact for the euro would solve the eurozone's problems. The pact does not mention or hardly mentions the word single market. The euro crisis itself is damaging to Europe's soft power, in addition to the slow growth I mentioned. And I think our soft power will further soft suffer unless the problem is fixed. So what is needed? Let me just mention very briefly some, some headings. Well, it's clearly, as I've already said, more market integration in services, more budgetary discipline, more structural reform in labour markets and pensions, more coordination of economic policy with a view to reducing current account balances within the Eurozone. And that means Germany rebalancing its own economy so that there is more consumption there and it's less export dependent. Greece, Ireland and Portugal will have to restructure their debts and that means that Germany and other countries will have to recapitalise their banks. The longer that leaders delay, the worse the problem of the Eurozone becomes, the higher the costs of resolving the problems and the more politically difficult it, it is to take action. Now there are reasons to be pessimistic and optimistic about the Eurozone. The reason to be pessimistic for me is this. You have a sick patient sitting on a couch the euro, and you have the doctors crowding around it who don't even agree on the diagnosis or the prescription needed to cure the problem. You have the Germans and several other countries uh, who think that what you need is budget discipline and structural reform and that's enough, and you have the French and many other countries who think that you need something more than that, you need to worry about demand in the peripheral countries and growth, and hence you have to tackle the imbalances and write off some of the debts.
That's the reason to be pessimistic. The reason to be optimistic is I think there is a political commitment of EU leaders to keep the euro. As Churchill might have said of the Germans, they can be relied upon to do the right thing after having exhausted all the other possibilities. And I have faith in the German elite. They do not want to preside over the breakup of the euro as their image of Germany as a nation is still a, that of a nation committed to European integration. The biggest problem in Germany is the elite has failed to <clears throat> explain to the public that the euro is good for it. So I am on balance optimistic. And are there any signs of hope in the eurozone crisis? Well, a few. Structural reform is now happening in Spain, Greece, and Portugal, though not in Italy, which I expect to be a, a very serious problem. In the German economy, there are some tentative signs that it is rebalancing, wages are rising, consumption may be growing a bit. So, I think the future of the EU will be messy and complicated, but not catastrophic. The euro crisis will be with us for many years. This means that European leaders will not have a lot of energy for trying to think about global issues, sadly. So I think that Europe is not going to be the main force shaping global governance in the coming years. I think the emerging powers will be more important. If the US does turn in on itself, and if Russia and China become scarier, then the EU will probably do what it takes to become a more serious global uh, power. At least in a rational world, it would. But Europe would need better leaders than it has today in order to do that. And I don't see the right leaders there. I'll stop there. Thank you. Charles, thank you for a, a really terrific lecture. I, I, um, I don't know if the audience feel, but I usually come away, when I've listened to a lecture, if I come away with four or five interesting thoughts, insights to mull over, I feel I've done quite well. And a really good lecture, maybe eight, ten, twelve. It seems as though we've had about a hundred shrewd, in, insightful observations and comments, ideas from Charles today. It's been a real, uh, a real embarrassment of riches. So much to... I'm sure for us to discuss and pick him up on. Um, and uh, yes, we've got about half an hour for questions and answers. Um, please um, say if you'd like to ask a question, please say who you are, wait for the microphone to come round, keep it very short and sweet, please. Thank you. Uh, who would like to kick off with a, ask a question? Yes. Gentleman in the tie there. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for an amazing lecture. Matthew Halliday's name. Just to ask, the European Union is setting up embassies abroad, another sort of state within a state, um, embassies in China. How will China see these? Will it, is, is it more interested in the, the nations or the embassies representing the European Union? Well, I think at the moment, China, like most countries, um, cares most about where the power is. And China or Russia probably thinks that the French embassy and the German embassy, possibly the British embassy, are the embassies that matter. Um, that's certainly the case in Washington, where the Europeans hardly make an effort to coordinate their policies. And each national embassy wants to have its own its own special relations with whichever US administration it is. I think in Russia and China, they've made a better effort to coordinate. And they do often, to be fair to them, sort of speak with the same, speak, speak to the same issues and try and have a common, 
position. I hope that with the new external action service being built and the appointment in Beijing of a very senior German diplomat, Marcus Edero, who's a very good guy to that particular job, I hope that as of now the, the, uh, the, the Chinese will start to see the EU's mission in Beijing as, as a place that they have to look to as one of the most important missions on a par with the French and the German and, and the British. Until now, it's been less than that, partly, of course, because the Commission representations have just dealt with trade and aid rather than the high politics and diplomacy. The new EU missions, as part of the Integrated External Action Service, should deal with much more, which is, gives them the Chinese an extra reason to listen to what Marcus Edera has to say. Thank you. Um, yes, more questions, please. Yes, Robin Nibbler. Thank you, Charles. Thanks for a, um, a great lecture. A little depressing, as um, one th thought it might be. But um, I want to try and pick up, therefore, try and be a little bit positive. Um, the, the EU, if you measure it against the rising powers, clearly comes out negatively. Um, it's weak on just about every... Uh, parallel measure, military, ability to focus political power, etc., uh, etc. Et um, what about measuring it against those countries that, like the EU, are struggling with similar things that the EU had to struggle with after uh, 1945? Um, parts of ASEAN, parts of Latin America, parts of the African Union. Um, there are many parts of the world that are struggling with large neighbors, difficulties of integration, um, uh, and the EU, it strikes me, still does have uh, lessons and or experiences it can share or even alliances or partnerships it could strike. Uh, and perhaps kind of measuring ourselves against uh, a Russia, a rising China and India, even the United States, none of which quite logically feel particularly multilateral because they can do whatever they want, um, is, is the wrong measure. Um, and I just wondered how much you've had a chance to look into um, whether you think there are efforts in other parts of the world to move towards regional integration, even if it isn't at the same depth um, as the EU, and whether there are sort of partnerships that could be struck at that level that either confer legitimacy or even the opportunity to improve things in those parts of the world. I'm very skeptical about regional integration in other parts of the world. I mean, I would like to think it will happen. And uh, the one I guess I've looked a little bit at is, is ASEAN, but, you know, ASEAN, every now and then, they commission a report, and as they send diplomats to London to come and talk to people like me and you, and they say, you know, what can we learn from the EU? Um, and uh, they did this a couple of years ago, in fact. But the truth is that there's no, in, in ASEAN and in the other organizations, there's absolutely no giving up of sovereignty to institutions and no hint that they will ever agree to it. I mean, one particular issue is the diversity of country within ASEAN. I mean, having a very poor backward country like Burma in the same organization as Singapore, which has you know, a very high standard of living, um, makes it very difficult for them to, to integrate. Um, there, okay, there, there, is, there is sort of some degree of free trade, I guess, with, in, amongst the ASEAN countries, though with lots of limits. There is some degree of free trade within Mercosur, though with, with limits. I'm not sure there's much free trade within the African Union uh, or the Organization of American States or, 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 the, or the, one, the South Asian Union, which doesn't seem to do very much. Um, 
So I'm, I'm basically skeptical. What is unique about the EU, for all its faults, is, is the willingness to give up sovereignty to central institutions like the Commission and the Court of Justice for the common good. And for all the EU's problems, that hasn't really been threatened yet. Even free movement of, of labour within the European Union. I saw an opinion on yesterday's Guardian. Only 31% of British people think that there should be free movement of labour in the European Union. That is, most British people don't think that French people should have a right to come and work here. But, um, you know, public opinion may be in, a bad, in the wrong place, as far as I'm concerned on that, but political leaders are not. So I think for now, for the time being, free movement of labour uh, and, and acceptance of EU institutions uh, is, is fairly safe. And I, my, my, critique of, my critique of the EU is that it's failed to, divert, to develop as a power. It's not become what I would have wished it to become, which is more like a country, I suppose, what you're saying. But compared to all the other regional organisations, it's clearly rather more successful, and I would put it in a different league altogether. Good. Thank you. Uh, Tim Gartner-Nash. Um, thank you. Thank you, Timothy Gartner-Nash. Um, um, Robert Niblett, um, uh, Charles said you were very compellingly depressing. Um, I'm not sure if you were quite depressing enough actually because if your prognosis is correct and I, I suspect it is namely that we're moving towards a world of so-called balance of power uh, multipolarity with emerging uh, relatively rising and declining powers competing with each other well we know where that ended in the past it ended in wars um, uh, in the European state system and then in two world wars. Do you see any good reason to believe that if we don't get a strengthening of the multilateral institutions of global governance, such a world will not end in wars, not necessarily between the main rising and declining powers, but perhaps between client states? Old-fashioned state state warfare is a, a serious risk, <clears throat> but I think it's really only a serious risk in East Asia and South Asia. Uh, I do think there's a, you know, if you think which countries might actually end up invading each other, I think, I think the India-Pakistan relationship looks difficult. I think the um, China's relationship with other countries in the South China Sea, where there are disputed islands, particularly Vietnam, is difficult. It's only 30 years since China and Vietnam fought a war. Um, clearly, North Korea might start to fight South Korea or Japan or somebody. I suppose the Taiwan situation, though at the moment it's quite sort of um, relaxed, you know, might be less relaxed at some point in the future. Those are four places where I think an old-fashioned shooting war is quite plausible. And they highlight the lack of regional institutions in Asia of the equivalence of the EU or NATO, which could constrain the freedom of manoeuvres of the countries I've mentioned. So I think the problem there really is not so much the lack of global governance, but the lack of regional governance, uh, which is, that I think is, would make me sleep better at night if there was, strong, if there was a, a, an Asian NATO or an Asian European Union. As for the, the sort of the, 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 the global picture of um, powers struggling against each other, rising, declining, forming alliances. Perhaps I'm naively optimistic, but I don't see them fighting each other. And perhaps the fact that a lot of them have nuclear weapons is a good thing, and it may reduce the temptation to fight each other. 
that could be a very foolish and naive thing to say, but that's possible. Um, I don't see much risk of Russia or China or Brazil or India or America fighting each other, except for the India-China thing, possibly. I didn't mention India-China. Uh, I mean, given that China claims a whole province of India, Arunachal Pradesh, and given that there are you know, Chinese armies in Tibet right next to that province, and that the Indians have also reinforced that province, I guess that is perhaps the one, the one relationship between two great powers that could, end, could perhaps end in war. Hopefully not. Yeah. Well, uh, questions, uh, yes, coming through thick and fast. I'll, I'll dump to the back. Um, yes, gentleman with the green shirt and the grey jumper. Thank you. Good evening. I'm Pierre Mamara. I'm a master's student here at the LSE. Would it be absurd to think that um, one of some of the reasons that the EU is going through a power slump at the moment is that it's tackling some problems earlier than other powers, problems that other powers might have to face in the future? Things like aging population, which China is going to face in, in a generation time, conversion to a green economy, um, and fiscal deficits, which the US will eventually have to face up to as well. And so could one think that an EU, maybe in a generation's time, having tackled these problems, could make a comeback as the rest of the great powers, in turn, have to face the same problems? Well, I hope you're right. Um, and I think there's something in what you say. I think I didn't talk very much about this. There's nothing about the EU's role in climate change. Um, the EU does lead the world. It may have failed to win the arguments in Copenhagen, but the EU has made commitments on climate that are way ahead of what any other uh, equivalent group or, or country has made. Um, and ultimately, if climate change is, is the problem that many of us think it is, then the others will have to come round to the kind of commitments that the Europeans have made on, on climate. As for being ahead on the green technologies, well, I hope so, but um, I think in a way China's probably ahead, isn't it? China's now the world's biggest manufacturer of wind turbines and of solar panels. Um, so Europe has an opportunity there, but it's possibly t a bit slow off the mark. Um, as for overcoming problems of, of demography, well, Europe hasn't overcome them yet. I suppose it's beginning to, as you say, it's raising pension ages in a number of countries, and perhaps th these, these difficulties are not insoluble. And China does have a very big problem of, um, problem of an aging population. So I hope you're right, but we don't know, do we? So. Thank you, Charles. Um, Hartmut Lentz and then Dennis McShane. Um, Hartmut Lentz uh, from the European Institute. I thought it was very interesting um, how, you, how you compared Russia and, uh, uh, and China and in which arenas they basically cooperate on the global governments and in which areas they don't cooperate. And I think this shows uh, quite well um, the two points. At the one hand, regional and global governments has one big advantage, which is it uh, increases commitment towards uh, policy. At the same time, it has also the disadvantage. It reduces the ability of a, of a government to, um, to, to act unilaterally. So I was wondering whether we should actually move the question from whether um, um, uh, governments uh, prefer uh, um, global governance or not towards the question whether it's strategically interesting for them to do so and how we can actually enforce uh, a corporate, global cooperation in this respect. So what's the question exactly? The, quest <laughs> the, the, the question is rather um, to see whether um, 
the, no. the question is rather that global governance is a, is, a, um, is a very strategic aspect and therefore a governments uh, cooperate when it is in their advantage and not so much whether they are uh, believing in it or not. I think that's right. Um, and I think the job of the Europeans is to, as I did actually say, is to try and convince the Russians and the Chinese and others that its global governance is good for you. Um, it's, it's not self-evident to all Russians and Chinese that that is the case. I discussed a bit the arguments over the WTO in Russia. Um, I, get, I guess the argument for the Russians is that, is that as they develop their economies, hopefully they will, as they build up export industries, hopefully they will, they will have global economic interests which need protecting, and so you need to be you know, taking part in global rules through that. For example, Russia wants to develop Moscow as a big financial center. They're quite serious about that. So maybe they should take a greater interest in international financial regulation, which they've sort of ignored. So I think you, can, you have to argue it, from a, as you say, from a basis of self-interest. As for China, how you persuade the Chinese that they should join arms control treaties and sort of uh, co collective security organizations or anything that reduces their freedom of maneuver, it's a very hard case to make. I mean, I, it's a question between what is the sort of immediate short-term national interest and what is in the sort of broader, longer-term interest. And I think the Chinese, to a large extent, still focus on the short-term and immediate interests and don't perhaps see the, 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 the longer-term interests that we in Europe like to focus on, but it's very, difficult to, 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 it's very difficult to think of the right arguments that will convince the Chinese. Is there somebody, somebody who's Chinese here would like to speak for the Chinese? I don't know. Uh, just before I come to Dennis McShane, are there any more from students particularly um, or uh, young people? Okay, several, several, several people. Uh, Yannick, Mishoki, Mishoki, and then we'll get to Dennis and we'll try and get the other two people afterwards as well. So we've still got 15 minutes. So, you know. um, yes, we'd like to. Janek uh, Alsatsky, LSE, graduate. Um, do you see any possibility for Security Council reform, um, particularly uh, with the other emerging powers you mentioned? Well, possibly other people here would have a better view than me, but I think it looks quite bleak. Um, I mean, I think, and here again, Europe is part of the problem because Europe doesn't have a policy on Security Council reform. There is no EU position. If anybody in the EU ever tries to raise this question and say, let's discuss Security Council reform, what happens is the Italians leave the room, so the discussion is, cannot take place. That's simply what happens. Because the Italians, for, for Italy, Security Council reform be a catastrophe. Because, um, because if it happens, they know that Germany will get a seat and they won't, which is just humiliating for them, so they just will try and stop it. Because not just the Europeans. I mean, China has tried pretty hard to keep Japan off the UNSC and in a, in a softer way to keep India off the UNSC. The Africans can't agree on who should represent them. And uh, now, technically, you actually only need a, you don't need unanimity to get change. Somebody here will correct me, but you don't, you can actually get this through the UN without unanimity, I believe. Uh, I don't know. Does anyone know the answer to yeah. that question? I think, I think you don't need unanimity, okay. but, but you do need a big majority. And the big majorities don't seem to be there. And we're stuck. We've been stuck for years. And the biggest problem is India not being on. Because uh, India is not always very constructive in, in the United Nations. They don't, uh, I think, uh, come up with lots of good ideas of their own. They, they don't try and help other countries with problems. But they have a good reason. They, they don't take the UNSC very seriously because they're not permanent members. And I think having India not fully engaged in the UN is a significant problem for global governance as, as a whole. But um, the longer this goes on, the more that the structure of the, of the UNSC will 
fail to represent the real structure of, of, of the world economy and international power politics. And so the less credible the UNSC will become. You mean and full, not just permanent members, but full veto-carrying membership yes. you would extend to countries like I, I think I think you have to extend v veto membership. Well, what you try and do at the same time as you do it is get a, a sort of gentleman's agreement amongst the members not to use their vetoes, which would be very hard to do, but not impossible, perhaps. Um, America uses its veto a lot. Britain uses its veto very rarely. Thank you. Dennis McShane. There are so many wonderful points in Charles' speech, especially with the current crisis in, uh, in the southern Mediterranean, as I prefer to call North Africa, uh, the Saudis invading and occupying Bahrain in the spirit of Prague 68, uh, uh, Gaddafi advancing on Benghazi while we can't even agree to uh, push back at him. The uh, Spanish have sent a submarine there, but I don't think we're going to defend Benghazi with torpedoes. Uh, but I mean, in, isn't the only really successful foreign policy Europe has had, Charles, that of enlargement, enlargement plus osmosis, and is it therefore the Turkish question one on which we should focus? And secondly, you were bemoaning at the end the lack of personalities. I agree with you, but we've had that problem before. Can you not see a time? I've got to give a talk on Mitterrand next Monday at St Andrews. Mitterrand in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s was not a great European. He called for um, abstention in the French referendum on whether Britain should join the EU in 1973. He became a great European when he became president of France. Can, uh, can we, must we write out the power and importance of personalities? Two or three leaders of Europe who are prepared really to get together, to hold hands like Mitterrand and Kohl and Verdun, can actually shift things. So I hate to reduce politics to personality, but by God, they do still count. Well, I share your predilection for enlargement. Um, but unfortunately, we do live in democracies, and public opinion in, in several European countries doesn't want much more enlargement. I think it'll happen in the Western Balkans, because that's sort of, eventually, that decision's been more or less taken, and the countries are sufficiently small to absorb. It may take 20 years, but eventually all the Western Balkan countries that meet the grade will, I think, be allowed in. I'm very skeptical about Turkey. I mean, I've long favoured Turkey membership of the EU, but I don't think it's going to happen uh, in the next 20 years. And uh, I actually think it's not all the EU's fault, it's partly Turkey's fault. You know, Turkey's locking up so many journalists at the moment, we have to, you know, ask questions as to whether we want them in our, in our club. And if Turkey goes back to being a squeaky clean democracy, or fairly squeaky clean democracy, it's never been totally squeaky clean, then, then the case for Turkish membership uh, improves. Also, the impact of Turkey on, on foreign policy, you know, quite, I said before, one of the problems with Europe as a power is it's hard to get agreement on foreign policy post-enlargement. Cyprus creates difficulties, but Turkey too would create difficulties. Turkey has a foreign policy on Iran that's very, very different from that of most other European countries. So integrating Turkey into our institutions would, would weaken us in some ways, perhaps. In the long run, I say, you know, I hope Turkey joins in the long run, but when its, its foreign policies are rather more convergent with ours and when it treats journalists better. Um, the thing, Dennis, is that we, we have to find a way of influencing our neighborhood without letting them in. 
because we can't let in many more. I mean, it, has to, it has to stop at some point, which is why the neighbourhood policy is so important. And this gives me a chance to plug a report I published on Friday on Europe's new neighbourhood policy, available for free on our website. Thank you, Dennis. Um, and, I mean, we haven't got time to go into it in detail now, but just, you know, the obvious things we need, more money, better market access, more mobility in terms of visas, and let's try and integrate them into our policies more than we have done. I'd have them into our foreign policies, and we must be stricter on the conditionality, and we should care more about democracy and human rights in North Africa, certainly, as I've already said. That's the way to influence them, I hope. Thank you. Uh, there was a gentleman there, and then we'll go to that side afterwards, yes. Yes. Uh, director, you just just now you uh, you said that uh, is there any uh, member from the Chinese embassy? Uh, yes, I am from the Chinese embassy. And it's a very interesting speech given by you. And uh, what 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 strikes me most is that it's quite different. Uh, with uh, my expectations before I entered this room. Actually, you are talking about global governance, but actually you are, uh, you are uh, this shows that it actually shows your mindset of the traditional, you know, traditional mindset that is a global power struggle. Um, actually, I'd like to understand this topic uh, from another a different angle. Because global governance, I think it is a, a irreversible Global trend, uh, it develop has developed has been developing along with the uh, era of globalization, and I'd like to think that the emerging powers will have uh, larger uh, will have larger voice in the construction of global uh, governance, and they can contribute more to the global governance and they can play constructive uh, role in this process. And I'd like to understand this. Uh, I'd like to say the global governance um, as a as a very uh, as a very positive uh, positive factor in forming a more harmonious world. That means it can help solve the traditional conflict conflicts between countries, including those those you know differences and differences and those traditional. Uh, a conflict of fact factors in the East Asia, just as you pointed out, between China and India, between China and other neighbor countries, and in this also in the South China Sea. So I think this global governance is a good thing. And the European Union, we say the European Union has played a leading role in global governance. You just pointed out there are some Asian countries. They, they asked what we can learn from the European Union. I think the European Union has, uh, you know, has, uh, has been the, in the vanguard you know, in, in the global governance because through the experience of your own integration. So that's why the Asian countries are interested in learning the experience from the European Union. So I think that global governance, I think, will, will help. Uh, people will help the emerging powers uh, to form a constructive, uh, a good, a better relations with the Euro European Union. And I, I want also just one last sentence. <laughs> I don't want to take the globalization, uh, global governance as one factor in the global power struggles, especially between those big powers. 
Thank you. I won't comment. Very interesting, but I won't comment on that. Um, there were, uh, yes, two people, the lady there and the gentleman at the back, and I think that's probably all we've got time for. We can keep it, keep it short. Thank you. Hello. I'm a Master of Science student here in International Relations at LSE. I was just wondering how um, the rising influence of China in Africa affects um, um, the European Union's response um, regarding the promotion of democracy and human rights, since um, China is kind of undermining its rhetoric of you know normative values and the promotion of um, democratization. I was wondering how um, the European response, or like how the European Union responds to um, like China's undermining of of their policies in Africa. Okay, um, well, that's a very interesting question, and um, obviously I think China's involvement in Africa is mostly to the good. Um, China does things in Africa that Western countries don't do anymore, like build infrastructure, which Africans quite understandably like, roads and railways, things like that. And I, I welcome Chinese involvement in Africa, but the, the, the criticism that I guess people like myself would make is that because the aid that China gives is unconditional, it doesn't have much of an effect on trying to persuade Africans to improve their governance. It's not quite unconditional because generally the condition is you must not recognize Taiwan and you must spend the money we're giving you in China, but mostly it's unconditional. Um, I guess uh, coming to North Africa, I mean, uh, the Southern Mediterranean, Dennis, um, there is, if, if China becomes involved in a big way in, in aiding these countries and offers aid without conditions, then that you know, could be rather attractive to these countries compared to what the EU offers if the EU, the EU does impose conditions. Um, I think we, we, just, we, we do talk to the Chinese about Africa. There is a dialogue between the EU and China on Africa, which is important. And I think we should keep talking. And I think there is an evolution in thinking in Beijing on this, because China understands that its own interests in Africa require good governance. A lot of its workers have been kidnapped and even killed in, in various African places because of the mess these, some of these countries are in. And I think China is being quite constructive on Sudan at the moment. China has supported the effective dismemberment of Sudan. Uh, the, it's allowed you know, South Sudan to, to break off, partly to protect its own oil interests in South Sudan. But I think China is, is often quite helpful and constructive on Africa and is becoming more so, and therefore the more we talk to it, the better. <clears throat> Thank you. Gentleman at the back. Hi, um, my name is Carlos. I'm, I'm from the LSE, um, of, in the uh, LSE, sorry, Urbanization and Development. Um, I have a question uh, regarding the EU and Latin America. I haven't seen much insights coming from you in terms of Brazil and other emerging Latin American um, economic powers. I would like your insight on, on that topic. I probably haven't said much because I don't think I've got many insights, I'm afraid. Um, other than the fact that a lot of what I said about China and Russia does apply to India, Brazil, South Africa, i.e. Uh, these are countries which, which want to play a bigger role in global governance, but which share the Russian and Chinese hostility to liberal interventionism. And, uh, but they want to do more. And I think Brazil's efforts to work with Turkey on the Iranian nuclear problem showed, you know, we're in the right spirit of trying to be helpful. They didn't actually achieve very much, but I think they, they were in the right spirit. Um, I don't think Brazil, Brazil is perhaps a little bit like Europe. It, it, it has a, it's mainly concerned about its own neighborhood and its own region, and it's only beginning to think about 
countries further afield, only beginning to develop policies for countries in more distant continents, rather like the European Union. So in, in that sense, you know, I see some similarities. Um, I'll try to squeeze in just one more question. I said I'd take it to 10 to 8. 10 to 8. Is there anyone I've cruelly neglected, particularly on the left hand, on, on that side of the theatre? Or a particularly welcome question from a, um, a student, ideally. You may not have spoken. Um, if not, well, you were the first to catch my eye, so it'll, it'll be you. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, good evening. Uh, thank you again for lunch. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, one is... Where, um, where are you? Who are you? Where are you from? Oh, uh, sorry. My name is Michael Stick. I, I, I'm a graduate student at the West London University. Um, you have referred uh, uh, several times uh, the soft power uh, label uh, towards the, towards the uh, EU, uh, and especially with regard to uh, defense uh, cuts across the uh, European Union. Um, however, I think uh, that, uh, as you know, when you put all 27 uh, member countries' uh, defense budget together, it's accounted for 250 billion um, uh, euros, so which is actually half of the U.S. and it's three or two times more than China, and the same number can be accounted for the, in regard to Russia. So, uh, would you? My first question is: Would you uh, reconsider the label "soft power" for a uh, clever power? And the second question: You at the beginning you mentioned. Yeah, a quote, EU is a weak economically, but uh, I, I didn't hear your reason for that at the end, so uh, what so do you mean by the, that? So what's the second question? Uh, you mentioned at the beginning uh, that uh, EU is weak economically. Mm. Uh, I didn't uh, f follow after that any, any specifics. Why? Yeah, okay. yeah, I, well, the answer to that is that I did say you. that it has a very poor record of productivity growth. That's, I mean, that's one reason. There are many other reasons, but that's part of it. The answer to the first question is <clears throat> very interesting. You're absolutely right. Europe spends quite a lot on defence. Uh, we spend about a third of what the US spends on defence, not a half, because the US is about 700 billion. Um, but uh, of course, we, could, we don't spend it well. We, most of the money goes on supporting bloated, inefficient national defence bureaucracies and duplicating what we do. And if, you know, if we had pooling of assets, we could get a lot more bang for our buck, of course. And there's a little bit of that beginning to happen. I think the British and the French collaborating on aircraft carriers is a very good step in the right direction. Um, I think there are, you know, the Dutch and the Belgians have sort of merged their navies. The, the Danes might abolish their air force. The Baltic countries don't have air forces. There are others to, to act for them. There are, there are specialization of roles and pooling is the way forward, but it's not happening enough. And whether or not it happens, um, if you cut defense budgets, I mean, you cut real capabilities, and Europe becomes less able to intervene and do things. I mean, look at Britain. Uh, we, don't, we have an aircraft carrier now with no aircraft, which would probably limit our ability to do things in the Mediterranean. So um, you're quite right. We spend a lot of money on defense. If it was more wisely spent, we wouldn't need to spend so much. But it's not, sadly, as wisely spent as it should be. So I would say don't cut so much, but what you do spend on, go for more pooling and role specialization. Is, uh, last question, uh, Charles. Uh, is the EU going to make it impossible for France and Britain to uh, actually play any useful role in a sort of hard power way uh, in the world? Is the EU going to effectively amputate itself? Is that the lesson we could draw from last Friday's meeting of heads of government? France and Britain inclined to try to make a difference in terms of hard power uh, the, and restrained by the EU. Do you think this is going to set the template now for... Is this what we need to look for? Well, let me finish on a more optimistic note. I, I don't think so. I'm more optimistic than you, Morris, because... But the point is it won't be the EU that is the, the organisation. Uh, let me... I'm, I'm quite critical of the French tonight, so let me say something good about the French. Um, 
uh, you know, conversations I picked up in Paris recently, the French say the EU doesn't work. Enlargement's made it impossible to organize. It's a mess. So let's have the Euro group to run economic policy with the Germans, and let's have a smaller group to do defense with the British. Now, I'm not a great fan of the Euro group becoming a sort of economic organization in its own right, but I do think that the French are absolutely right about you can only do defense with a smaller group. 27 countries do not even agree on whether it's right to use force if people are being massacred. You can never do it with 27. You need a small group of militarily serious countries who are prepared to use force if necessary. Call it a, an EU defense club. I don't know what, what jargon you want to use to describe it. This is the way forward. The Lisbon Treaty allows you to do that under the structured cooperation provisions. There isn't the political will to do that at the moment. The governments aren't really interested. The British are not interested because it, it would be seen to be a, 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 a European thing. But the British are prepared to do it just with the French. So you have to build the bridge between doing it just with the French and doing it with a, a small group of well, serious why countries. Why does it need an EU label at all? It, do, it doesn't have to. I don't, it doesn't have, need an EU label at all. You can call it, the, you can call it uh, a West European Defence Club. It doesn't really matter. But I don't think we should wait for the EU to approve action before we intervene Absolutely. in a place like Libya. So I, I would say the serious countries should go ahead on their own without waiting for the EU to follow. On that positive note, uh, at least from my perspective, uh, Charles, thank you for giving us a really outstanding hour and 20 minutes. It's been a, a real uh, cornucopia uh, of riches. Uh, I'm sure we want to record our appreciation for a really magnificent lecture and question and answer session to Charles Grant. Thank you.